you have your Bibles, please turn uh, with me to Acts chapter 11, and we're going to be looking at the story of the, the birth of the church in Antioch, which we have from verse 19 to the end of the chapter. Uh, this afternoon, our Portabrook group begins again after a, a break of something like four weeks, I think, and it's been a, a wonderfully creative time together as we've thought about what it is to be a missional church. We're looking at a module called Living as a Missional, or a Missionary, we could say, Community. And if we were to think about a New Testament church which fulfilled that aspiration, which really was a church shaped by the, the, the primacy of evangelism, of outreach, then we might think perhaps of the church at Thessalonica. Uh, because we're told there that the gospel, the good news, uh, sounded from that church uh, like the sounding of a bell <coughs> rang out. But we would certainly, I think, be looking at the church in Antioch as an example of a mission-minded church. And as the book of Acts develops, the, the center of gravity for the church moves away from Jerusalem to Antioch. As the culture of the church becomes more Gentile and less Jewish, Antioch becomes a place from which missionaries are sent, becomes the, the hub of activity. We think uh, today of, of modern day Antioch. Antioch has become something of a, of a, a byword for uh, a missionary conscious community. Uh, some of the missionaries speak in terms of a place like Singapore. Uh, being an, the Antioch of Southeast Asia because there's a concentration there of Christians and of missionary agencies in a very central part. Antioch, the city, was certainly uh, in a very strategic place. It was, by the, third, uh, by the first century rather, it was the third city of the Roman Empire. There was Rome and there was Alexandria in Egypt and then there was Antioch. And the scholars reckon that at this time, the population of the city was around half a million. It's situated really at the confluence of Eastern and Western culture, at the southern end of modern-day Turkey. Very cosmopolitan city at this time. There were Greek speakers, uh, there were Romans, there were Orientals, and there was also a significant Jewish community, one of the, the Seleucid kings, uh, it had been a Seleucid king who founded Antioch and one of the kings encouraged Jews to come and settle in Antioch. So there was a significant Jewish presence. In fact, there's something of a debate as to what's meant by uh, the, the Hellenists uh, that were sp spoken to or witnessed to here. Uh, some of the scholars think that they may not have been Greek pagans as such, but they may have been people from a non-Jewish background who had contact with the synagogue and who had an awareness of uh, what Jews believed. Antioch, a large city then, a cosmopolitan city, a decadent city. Edward Gibbons, the historian, writes of Antioch, Fashion was the only law, pleasure the only pursuit, and the splendor of dress and furniture was the only distinction of the citizens of Antioch. The arts of luxury were honored, the serious and manly virtues were the subject of ridicule and the contempt for female modesty and reverent age announced the universal corruption 
of the capital of the East. And yet, it was into this cosmopolitan but decadent, dark society that the light of the gospel came. And it was from this uh, Christian uh, center in Antioch that the gospel light shone forth into other dark corners of the world. So let's look together now in more detail at what it was that made Antioch into the missionary community it became. First and foremost, we would have to say that this was a work of God. That is always the case, of course, isn't it? God's hand uh, was at work in bringing about a special situation in Antioch. The martyrdom of Stephen uh, is mentioned at the beginning of Antioch's story. And the martyrdom of Stephen had seemed to be a tragedy for the church. The man that the church could least afford to lose, so it seemed, became the first martyr. And as a result of the, the killing of Stephen, there erupted in Jerusalem uh, a fervent hatred towards those who, of the, the way, as they were called then. And so Christians were compelled to, to flee from the persecution. And some of them were dispersed as far north as Antioch, which was 400 miles away from Jerusalem, a significant distance. They came as religious refugees. And it was these people, refugees from religious persecution, who took the church onto the next level by witnessing to non-Jews there. So friends, we should never despair at what appears to be setbacks. When the church seems to be on the back foot, when things are going in reverse gear, we ought always to have an eye on what God is doing in the world. He has a sovereign purpose uh, which often perplexes us, which is hidden from us, but he is able to use our weakness in order to display his strength and power. And a good example in recent uh, history would be the, the case of the church in China. With Mao Zedong's cultural revolution, missionaries are forced to, to leave the country and the West looks on and thinks, well, that's, that's what's come of such a prolonged period of missionary endeavor where the progress was painfully slow. It's come to a, an abrupt halt. And then for decades, nothing coming out of China, no news, until the openness came. And it was revealed that in China, there is possibly a church of 75 million believers not only so, but believers with a, a, a strong missionary instinct. So that some think that China may become the, the new powerhouse of world mission in days to come. Our town, where God has set us, is part of a sprawling, densely populated area. And the need is great, much spiritual darkness. The outward signs... Discouraging. Churches closed and boarded up or emptying rapidly. But we look to God to see signs of his hand at work. Uh, 
Christians within the church, leaders, can speak of missionary strategy and sometimes people speak of the mega cities, the great centers of population being the place where we ought to place all the resources. I become a little bit cynical of that kind of talk because in the New Testament we find that God is the strategist. God is the one who takes the initiative. And we find that when God is at work, he moves people into to situations in preparation for a work. And we look at our circumstances and we, we see God placing us and having a purpose before us. It's exciting. It's encouraging to recognize the hand of God in even what appears to be discouraging circumstances. It was from the persecution of the church that the growth in Antioch arose. God was at work. It was the hand of the Lord that led to the growth. Secondly, it was an army of, a grassroots army of evangelists who came to Antioch. These were ordinary people with a, a burden to share the gospel. The people who shared the gospel in Antioch were not people who had been off to Bible school. They were not people who had had years of training. People simply spoke of what they knew and there was great response. And again, Luke is careful to attribute the ultimate response to God. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who work. God does the work of conversion. But at the same time, his people have to be obedient each one of us is called to be a witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not all called to be ministers or missionaries in the technical sense, but we're all called to be missionaries in the informal sense, in that we have a story to share. These people began by just sharing the gospel to fellow Jews, but soon there was an impulse that drove some of them at least to share with non-Jews. And it's interesting that some of the men who began to share with non-Jews came from the island of Cyprus, which was Barnabas' home territory. That's where he came from. Barnabas, the big-hearted man. The man who was always in the fore when things were moving forward. And perhaps these, these men had been encouraged by their contact with Barnabas. Who knows? But I imagine that as the people came into Antioch, they had many opportunities to, to speak in a natural way with their new neighbours and their new workmates. What brings you to Antioch, people would have asked them. Why have you come all the way, all this long journey from Jerusalem up here? Well, they would say, we, we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Jews in Jerusalem hated us for our belief and they, they drove us out of the city. Do you think it was worth it? Would it not have been better just lying down and going on with, with life as before? Well, we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And although they, they nailed him to the cross and, and he died in agony, he rose again from the dead and our lives have been transformed. And there's no way we could go back to our old belief and way of life. And so it would have gone on. It's interesting, isn't it, to notice that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. 
And very likely the term Christian wasn't uh, used in, a, in, in any sense of understanding. It was probably a, a slight mocking tone attached to the term. These are the people who are always going on about Christ. Always going on about Christ. The Christians. But wasn't that wonderful? They were known as people who were always talking about Jesus. And it makes you wonder, doesn't it, how often is it that people who don't believe hear us use the word Jesus? We hear the name so often used in a wrong sense as a blasphemy. They shared the gospel. They were a grassroots army of evangelists. And they got alongside their new neighbors and they told them about Jesus. The Karen people, uh, the hill tribes people of Burma and, and Thailand, uh, many of them Christians, maybe half of their population Christians, they've got a wonderful way of telling the good news to their non-Christian neighbors. And often what happens is this, a number of them will, will get uh, funded by the village just a, a a very, maybe a, a two or three pounds enough for some fuel for their dirt bike, some rice. And they'll go to a village where the people are not Christians, where they're animists or Buddhists. And what they do is they go and they work in the fields with these non-Christian Karen. And they share their lives. They help them take in the harvest or they help them transplant the rice. And over time, they gain their respect and confidence and they share not only the, the gospel, they share their lives with these people. The people in Antioch and the missionary Christians around the world uh, are not slow to cross cultural boundaries. In Antioch, the people who shared with people from a different culture had confidence in the God who has created cultural diversity. And who has a plan to bring in people from all the different nations into his own special people. And so a willingness to make that journey towards people of different nationalities or different uh, cultural or religious allegiances is a mark of the missionary spirit. Paul said, I have become all things to all men that I might by some means... <coughs> win some so if cultural diversity is a gift from God then we can and we should see what is best in other cultures and by coming near to people in this way seek to bring them to Christ because the converse is true I don't believe that you can commend Jesus to someone if they feel that you look down upon them or disgust them or despise them, but by showing an interest in them, by appreciating what is good about the things that they hold dear, something of that gap, that cultural gap is narrowed, and we can share the gospel. The gospel is heard, hearts are softened. There was a work of God, a strategic work of God. There was an army of evangelists Thirdly, there was a, an encouraging and affirming leadership. Luke tells us that a great number of people believed because the Lord's hand was with the ordinary witnessing believers. 
And so great a number appears that uh, the word spread, spread like wildfire. And it got down to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And they decided that they should send someone up to check it out, to see what was happening, to see if it was in order. <coughs> now I think most of us, when we, when we read of the church in Jerusalem taking this kind of action, we, we have a fairly negative attitude towards the Jerusalem leaders. And we sometimes think of them as grim thought police who are always wanting to, to keep tabs on everything. I think we need to remember two things. First, what's happening in Antioch is a new movement. It's quite difficult for us to, to think our way into that. We've said it before. Unless you're actually a Jew, it's difficult to, to think of the big step that it was for the gospel to go to non-Jews. But it was a big step. And there would be a natural concern by the leadership lest this movement should turn into a, a schismatic movement and so that a, a sect outside the church was set up. So they have, a, they have a legitimate and a genuine concern for the welfare of the church. But also I think their, their warmth and openness to what is happening is shown by the fact that the one that they send is Barnabas. Barnabas, the man of the big heart. Barnabas, the one who could always see the good in others, in what was going on. He's the one that they sent. Now that surely was significant. Verse 24 says, he was a man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He's one of the great guys of the, of the Bible. Every time he's mentioned, uh, he comes away with flying colors. He's a man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. We met him at the first time when uh, he gave the lead in showing generosity. You know, he, he, he had a farm in Cyprus. He sold a field, brought the money and laid it at the feet of the apostles so that they could use it in practical ways to relieve poverty. We find him again and he's coming alongside Saul of Tarsus. Saul, newly converted. Same situation. The leadership, a little bit weary. After all, this man was just recently persecuting the church. Is he trying to get behind our lines? Is this some kind of a plot, a conspiracy? A little bit wary. But Barnabas comes alongside Saul and introduces him to the leadership at Jerusalem. He's always the positive one. Always seeing the possibilities in situations. Always affirming, encouraging. Taking the initiative in doing good. And Barnabas saw the evidence of the grace of God and he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. An affirming leadership, an encouraging leadership. Now, in the church today, uh, we, need, we need both sides, don't we? we? We need people who have a concern that things be done decently and in order. We need to be concerned lest false doctrines slip in unnoticed. The, the problem that it practically is that often there's a tension between life and order. These two energies, if you like. People who are on the front line, people who are innovating, pioneering, engaging with secular culture for the gospel, 
are very often people who can be impatient of procedural niceties. But proper procedure can act as a safety belt rather than a set of bricks. It can, if it's properly employed, it can prevent uh, things crashing, protect from disaster rather than slow the pace of movement. Interesting dynamics at, at our, our presbytery, I think, in local, in recent meetings, there are some great things happening within our presbytery. Very exciting, encouraging things. We hear of cross-cultural outreach, uh, which is proving really successful. Uh, we have heard of proposals for new church plants. And there are, inevitably, there are those whose inclination is to reach for the book of procedure and wait till all of the, the, the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted before anything happens. And thankfully, we have men like Barnabas who are saying, look, we don't want to be cavalier about Presbyterian oversight, but then neither do we want to stifle the Holy Spirit. And if God's Spirit moves men to church plant and evangelize and reach out to ethnic groups, then let us facilitate, let us encourage. And that's great to see these two things in their, their proper uh, context. And at a congregational level, we also, as, as elders, we want to be receptive to every initiative to lead us as a fellowship into new initiatives, grassroots initiatives, to share Jesus however we can and as creatively as we can with those around us. And encouraging and affirming leadership. Fourthly, there was a teaching of converts. There was attention given to the teaching of new Christians. Barnabas had the wisdom to see that when a person believes in Jesus, that's only the beginning of the journey. New believers need to be built up in their faith. And so Barnabas went to Tarsus and he fetched Saul. Barnabas knew that Saul was the best theological mind the church had. He knew he was smarter than he was himself. And he went to get the best brains, the best teacher for the church at Antioch. There are loads of new Christians, but they're babies. They don't know much. They're naive in some of the positions that they're adopting. They need someone who has got a solid appreciation of the scriptures. And there's no one like Saul. We'll get Saul and we'll have him. We'll set him up as, as the professor in Antioch. He'll teach the new converts. Now that takes grace, doesn't it? It took grace for Barnabas to go and get someone uh, that he recognized was better qualified than he was. Rather than hog that role, he got somebody who was better suited to the role than he was. Training in doctrine. Something people are sometimes impatient of, but it's vital to the health of the church. If church life is to move beyond enthusiasm to robust uh, persistency and perseverance, we need to be well taught. Now, the history of the, the free church in the 19th century uh, is a warning of the danger of failing to see the importance of, of confessional teaching. The, the formation of, of the, the church was uh, 
like a revival. There was evangelistic fervor. There was missionary zeal. And there was practical good works. But then, on the back of spiritual pride, there was an influx of liberal theology from the continent that came into the colleges. A desire for respectability and decline followed. And today, we have a commitment to confessional Bible teaching because no one wants to see history repeated because the teaching of true doctrine is vital Don Carson uh, the international Bible speaker a writer of many many books he tells of the time when he was talking with a woman uh, who had been converted during the, the Welsh revival of 1904 to 1905 And Carson says that the conversation was an inexpressibly glorious half hour. And then he went on to comment how sad it was that so little of the revival was preserved. Almost nothing was done to capture or develop theological schools, multiply Bible teaching, or train a new generation of preachers. And so he made this amazing pledge. He said, should the Lord in his mercy ever pour out large-scale revival on any part of the world where I have influence, I shall devote all my energy to teaching the word, to training a new generation of godly pastors, to channeling all of this God-given fervor towards doctrinal maturity, multiplication of Christian leaders, evangelistic zeal, maturity in Christ, genuine Christian fellowship. And so we need to have in place effective training in doctrine and practical godliness. And that doesn't just happen from the pulpit or from some of the the, uh, learning by extension methods. It also needs to happen uh, on a small scale, perhaps uh, on a one-to-one basis between older Christians and younger Christians so that we may be Thoroughly equipped, each one of us, for every good work. Importance of training. And then finally, the church at Antioch was marked by its spirit of partnership. A spirit of partnership. It began by the infusion of the nations into the church. Cypriots. Africans crossing the divide to evangelize Greeks and Romans and Orientals. And therefore, as a church that had begun in that way, it was only natural that it should see its indebtedness uh, to other cultures. And when there was a prophecy given by the prophet Agabus that the believers in Judea would suffer because of a famine that was coming upon the world, it was only natural that they would see the obligation that was upon them to help out, to partner them through this coming difficulty. And so they they raised funds to send down to Jerusalem. The unity of the church is an immensely important and practical doctrine. And it implies partnership in the gospel. We need one another. We need one another globally. The day is long past when the church in the West can go it 
alone. We are in a minority in world church terms. That's, that is the reality, folks. There are more Christians amongst the Karen people, whom many of us have only recently heard of. There's more Christians amongst the Karen than there are people in Scotland. There are more Christians in Nagaland, in northeast India, than there are in Norway. There were more Presbyterians, there are more Presbyterians worshipping today in Ghana than there are in Scotland. We're experiencing a great shift in the centre of gravity of the church. And of course, right on our own doorstep, we are blessed by the presence of our very own missionary from Argentina, from one side of the world to the other. And part of her support comes from a church in the USA, a Presbyterian church in the USA, who have also uh, been generous in supporting uh, a Karen pastor, Bunshu, that we were with recently. And we hope, as a, a congregation, uh, to benefit from partnership from a, a Presbyterian church in Northern Ireland, who have generously offered to send some young people to help us with our summer outreach. And it's a wonderful flow of support and personnel, a partnership in the gospel that transcends cultures and geography. And the legacy of Antioch, that it was a mission church, it was a church that, that needed people to come to it, to build it up. It was a mission church that became a missionary church. From the, the strength of Antioch, there was an overflow so that it began to send out people. Barnabas and Saul who came to Antioch to build it up are sent out from Antioch. And that should be our desire, shouldn't it? For our own wee congregation here that as we partner with others, God will build us up in order that we might become strong enough to become a sending congregation others would be blessed to be in partnership with us. That might seem a long way off, but surely it must be our vision. And God is able. And to his name be all the praise and the glory. Amen. As we think about the church and uh, the, the church's mission, we're going to sing uh, a hymn by, by Keith Getty that, that speaks of uh, this. O church, arise and put your armour on. Hear the call of Christ our captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. With shield of faith and belt of truth, we'll stand against the devil's lies. An army bold whose battle cries love reaching out to those in darkness. When we hear the tune through, and then once we've heard it through, we'll stand and we'll sing this.
standard sing. Christ we stand in glory. 